All right. Hello, and uh, <clears throat> welcome to the program. My name is Don Johnson, and this is uh, For All Time. This will be episode five, I guess. Um, today, we're going to be taking a different look. I do have a stack of stories here. I probably actually had a ton of stories I prepared yesterday, but I thought this would be a little fun change of pace. Uh, a while ago, I was watching pretty much every documentary out there about uh, the Scientologists, Scientologists, Scientology specifically. Kind of went through them all and came up with one person in particular who had already done everything. She'd done all of it. Like top to bottom, she had already done the Leah Remini route. Basically, she she had gone out there, got the people at the time that were available, and done this all. Um, you know, interviewed people, done her research, had people harass her, etc. I mean, that all happened kind of after this book, I think. Um, pretty sure, actually. Uh, they harassed her, put her in a case that almost like tried to ruin her life. I think they almost like had her even uh, committed or something. This is back in the seventies when this book was published. Um, it's out of print now. It's called The Scandal of Scientology. The book The Scientologist Tried to Stop, at the top it says, a chilling examination of the nature, beliefs, and practices of the now religion. Now, in this case, oh, that's by Belmont Tower Press. 95 cents, paperback. Um, let's take a look on the inside. So Paulette Cooper, real hero, still alive. I'd love to talk to her eventually one day. Um, but let's go inside the inside. I think she asks the key questions here, even though this was 1972, I believe, 1971. These were questions that people were asking about Scientology then. Um, is it really a religion? Why does it cost so much? Why do so many attractive young men and women join? Do Scientology reverends become sexually involved with their clients? Was Charles Manson a Scientologist? Why was Scientology banned in Australia? What qualifications do Scientology auditors have? What happens to people who leave Scientology? What doctors say about Scientology's... <laughs> what do doctors say about Scientology's therapeutic claims? An alarming expose that will tell you the truth about Scientology. Um, anyway, so I tracked this novel down. Novel, excuse me. Uh, it's an expose paperback, which these days I don't, you know, this would be like a huge hardcover book if this came out now. But at the time, honestly, Scientology was a niche topic. You know, um, there was no Tom Cruise. There was no... Most of the celebrities that you know today that were or are in Scientology were not part of that group, so the profile wasn't as high. I mean, its activity, its I mean, it, it did have a profile. People definitely knew about it in the common world a bit, but if anything, it was like a vague uh, ambivalence. You know, people didn't really have enough of uh, information to make an opinion other than they were just weird like all those other groups out there at the time that they might have called weird. But... Uh, she dedicated it to her parents, Ted and Stella, 
with all her love and thanks. I just want to look, I'm just going to read through the table of contents just so you can get an idea of what her investigations turned up. Um, she covers the, uh, the transition from Dianetics to Scientology from just like the book of Dianetics to becoming like the Church of Scientology, etc. Um, let's see. Uh, she has some confessionals. I believe that's from court paperwork. Uh, let's see. She talks about sex in the organization, their concept of uh, previous incarnations, well, previous, it's kind of, they have a concept of previous lives, essentially. Um, let's see, how they spread their message, the org, as they call their, themselves, the different orgs are the locations, they're essentially their churches in different uh, regions. Um, the Sea Org, which is the organization they have that's on a ship, if you're unfamiliar. Um, it's been on multiple ships. The British and Australian orgs. Now, I think Australia still has banned Scientology. I don't know about the rest of the world, but I know it is banned in some other countries. Fascinating history there. Um, let's see. Suppressives. There's a chapter on that. Those are, those are people who, uh, like you and me, who are not uh, Scientologists and probably would think that that concept is foreign no matter what context you would describe any uh, information in it to us in. Um, the world of Scientology, children and celebrities. So still, even then, they'll talk about celebrities. Uh, I wonder what celebrities her book covers. I have to look into that. Um, Scientology, business or religion. So at that time, I believe Scientology had lost its tax-exempt status. It would get it back in the 90s. I believe it was 1994, 95, something like that. Uh Let's see, Scientology versus medicine, right, their stances on that stuff, particularly, I don't even know if that was, I don't know if the element would be therapy there or um, medicine, I'll have to look into that. The secret Scientology sessions, the e-meter, oh, that'll be important. That's actually what I might want to focus on is the e-meter specifically. The high cost of Scientology, of course the truth about L. Ron Hubbard, and I believe that might have been the stuff that got her in trouble, was writing about that, and not to mention talking with some of the people who had left Scientology without the permission of Scientology. Um, and uh, does Scientology work? Okay, interesting. So here, I'm going to read, read her uh, preface first, I think. Um, it does a good job of kind of setting you up for uh, what this is all about. The scandal of Scientology is not the story of one isolated group. It tells of a loosely organized network of hundreds, perhaps thousands of franchises. And remember, this is in 1971. Uh, not today, it's obviously much larger, though it has shrunk much from its uh, apex size. Um, it tells of a loosely organized network of hundreds, perhaps thousands of franchises, orgs, churches, etc., that have been established in various parts of the world. Each group has its own personality. Because one incident may have occurred in Australia or England, it does not necessarily mean it has happened or even could happen in America or vice versa. The only thing that the Scientology groups or orgs have in common is their acceptance of L. Ron Hubbard's theories and policies. This book contains more historical than contemporary material. Some of the information, that's why I, I like it for this specific purpose. 
Some of the information comes from the American tax case that ran from 1956 to 59. Some of it comes from a 63 to 65 inquiry in Victoria, Australia. And some of it comes from statements Hubbard made in the 1950s. Every day, there are new directives, canceling old policies and creating new ones so that the nature, beliefs, and practices of Scientology are constantly changing. It is to Hubbard and to the Scientologist's credit that the direction is a generally positive one and that some of the less laudable practices outlined in this book appear on the wane. I'll continue. I have tried to present the Scientologist statements, quoting them directly whenever possible, and actions, along with the statements and actions of those who are against them or who have had difficulties with them. Until now, Scientologists have been able to keep the stories a secret, generally, generally, by suing. However, as more inquiries into Scientology are made, as more news stories about the organization are printed, and as more criticism against Scientology is levied, Scientologists may discover that lawsuits are ineffectual. Instead of trying to hide what is going on in their house, they may have to clean it up. If they don't, various national governments may not permit them to survive. Scientologists are already recognizing this. Like many groups that were formerly enjant, oh, oh, is it? She did write that. Enfant Tarib. Scientology, if it continues in its current cleanup campaign, may one day become one of the world's most respected groups or churches. She gives them a lot of uh, credit and leeway there with the future that we can give her extra credit for being present where we are today. Um, it has taken more years, more than two years to gather up all the material in this book. I would like to thank a few of the people who unselfishly gave of their time and energy to aid the project. First, I'd like to thank those who helped in the early phases of the manuscript. I'm just going to read them all out. Hayes B. Jacobs, C. Michael Curtis, and especially Anne Barr and Queen Magazine, which published a small portion of this book. I am also especially grateful for the help later of Michael I. Sanders, Ray Buckingham, Ralph Lee Smith, Susan Kedekel, Robin Wagner, Jay Larson, and especially Adelaide Ungerland. Finally, I'd like to thank those who helped me with this book in England, Victor Briggs, Paul Nix, and especially Peter Haining. I think it's worth reading that considering how much enjoyment we're about to get out of this book. And she uh, poses a quote from L. Ron Hubbard before the, uh, her writing begins. A Scientology clear can be tested for any and all psychoses, neuroses, compulsions, and repressions, all aberrations, and can be examined for psychosomatic ills. These tests confirm that the clear to be entirely without such ills or aberrations. Additional tests of his intelligence indicate it to be high above the current norm. Observation of his activity demonstrates that he pursues existence with vigor and satisfaction. And that's a quote by LRH himself. And then there's a quote below that by LRH Jr. I find that I have seen very little, if any, result from Scientological processing that I would consider to be demonstrable results in the physical universe. I have yet to see a stable clear that could operate better continuously in the physical universe. 
Hmm. All right. Introduction. You may have seen them standing on the street corners with a handful of leaflets, distributing them aggressively to passers-by. You may not have even noticed them at all, because they look so much like you and me, except maybe a little younger, and sometimes a little more like a hippie. But if you had stopped to take one of their leaflets, you would have discovered that you were being invited to step into the exciting world of the totally free, for a lecture on Scientology, the applied philosophy of knowing. On closer perusal, you would have discovered that Scientology can raise your IQ to over 135, give you creative imagination, amazing vitality, deep relaxation, good memory, strong willpower, radiant health, magnetic personality, and good self-control. It sounds pretty good, so it's possible that you had nothing better to do that night, and you may have found yourself outside one of their headquarters about to step into what they call the exciting world of the totally free. That's in quotes, too, by the way. (laughs) The exciting world of the totally free. Once you walked into this world, you would have immediately noticed a number of large posters of a fatherly-looking man, a bookstore with over 35 books, all written by the same man, a bulletin board listing various levels of, quote, freedom, and everywhere people running around, busy in some unseen activity, but never too busy to stop and greet each other, and often you, the newcomer, with a handshake and a thank you, a strange smile that seems to be attached to, but not part of his face, and an intense stare that would startle a paranoid, but would please someone who likes to be looked at straight in the eye. After you signed in, you would be directed into a classroom where a pleasant-looking man welcomed you to the Church of Scientology. The man might begin the lecture rather nervously. He probably never spoke in public before he joined Scientology by telling you how Scientology (laughs) changed his life. Six years ago, I was a failure, he may begin, earning $15,000 a year. I had a wife a house, and a child. I hated my job, hated my wife, hated my life. On the weekends, I used to lie in bed staring at the ceiling, wondering how I ever got into this mess. And then I discovered Scientology. Beautiful, says a girl standing by the door, and everybody turns to see an attractive brunette with a strange stare that immediately marks her as a Scientologist. (laughs) I just want to say that I love Paulette Cooper. Um... She's one of my favorite people in the world, and she speaks exactly how she writes and vice versa. I mean, this is her. This is her voice. Like, her writing this, like, when if you ever seen her, um, if you ever watch any of the Scientology documentaries that she has taken part in, um, like the, that big, most recent one that was on TV for a while, um, that is, she's the best part of it. I just, she's incredible. <laughs> Uh, let's see. One man picks up his attache case and leaves. This is obviously not his idea of success. But the rest sit back, waiting to learn how he, is, how he was saved by Scientology, expecting a speech full of thunder and lightning, and most of all, references to God. But no, the Church of Scientology rarely mentions God, and the speech is more like a sales pitch than a revivalist meeting. The man is obviously selling something, but it's hard to tell exactly what it is. He does not talk in terms of prices or bargains or discounts or markups. He seems to be selling an elusive product called happiness. We have a woman coming in here who is in psychoanalysis. Oh, we had a woman come in here who was in psychoanalysis for eight years, he continues. Eight years. But after five days in Scientology, she had no more problems. 
Beautiful, says the Scientology girl again. But now the rest of the audience seems to be silently agreeing with her. And since her remark is no longer out of place, no one turns around to look at her. Instead, everyone is sitting up, straining slightly forward like runners waiting for the starting gun, <laughs> waiting to hear more about the miracle. But again, they are surprised. Instead of elaborating on how Scientology could have helped that woman, or anyone else, the lecture goes into a long philosophical discourse on, quote, communication. A few people walk out. Several, too polite or too self-conscious, let their eyes wander over to the various exits as they secretly plan their escape. Their time comes, after about a half an hour later, when the lights are turned off and a movie about Scientology is flashed on a screen. Four or five people sneak out now, ducking low, perhaps anxious not to disturb the others with their shadow on the screen, perhaps not wishing to be identified. Those who stay, however, are in for two surprises. The movie stars a man named L. Ron Hubbard, who they realize is the same man who <laughs> wrote all those books outside. And when L. Ron Hubbard comes on the screen with an open shirt, ascot, and the type of smile that suggests he's hiding... <laughs> gum in the back of his mouth, the audience <laughs> discovers that he <laughs> that he is the same fatherly looking man who appeared in all the posters outside. Only now, he doesn't look nearly so composed. The film shows an interview on the British Broadcasting Company, and throughout, Hubbard keeps alternating his clenched smile with a look that suggests that his interviewer, or perhaps his questions... Has a very bad odor. Uh, uh, yes. I see. Yeah, this this book was clearly... Uh, I feel like this book was meant to be, like, much longer. Um, there's just, like, a real truncation of, of like, paragraph structure. Uh, but anyway... Let me continue. The film isn't as tiring as the lecture, but at least, at last... That, too, is over, and the lecturer makes his final sales pitch, only this time he is selling something quite tangible. The first Scientology course, which he says might increase your IQ by 15 or 20 points, but is guaranteed, quote, guaranteed to help you improve your communication or your money back, end quote, for only $15. If you had been one of the dozen people still left, it is possible that you would have signed up for that course, along with the rest of the people who remained. After all, who else in this, where else in this world could you find promise of instant happiness for only $15 with a money-back guarantee as well? Where else, if you're lonely, could you find such an immediate word, world of promising friends? Hmm. Yes, quite. If you're sexually or socially frustrated, where else could you find as many young, single, attractive people? If you didn't get as far in school as you would have liked, where else would you take a few courses and attach a Scientology BA to your name? Or, better still, for a few more courses, be called doctor or reverend. In fact, if you always wanted to be a doctor, psychiatrist, or priest, where else could you become the equivalent of this in less than a year of training? And if you're curious about this exciting world of the totally free that you've accidentally stumbled upon, how else could you find out about it without paying that $15? Some of the people who signed up for Scientology to satiate their curiosity might have done better if they had read the newspapers. <laughs> oh, Paulette Cooper, I love you. 
They would have read that Scientology is currently being investigated in England. They would have read that Scientology is has been banned in Victoria, Australia, Western Australia, and South Australia. Today, all of Australia. They would have read that in Scientology, some people are allowed to listen to the most intimate sexual secrets of other people after just a few months of training. They would have read of the death lessons, in quotes, that were once being taught in British schools devised by Scientologists. They would have read of a group called The Process, in quotes, that worships sex and the devil and believes in every type of sexual perversion. They were started by Scientologists. They would have read of a man named Charles Manson, convicted of murdering Sharon Tate and others. He may have been a Scientologist. They would have read of a group that tried to, quote, take over the National Association of Mental Health in England. They, too, were Scientologists. They would have read about the Scientology, quote, reverend, who was sleeping with a married woman who had come to him for help with her marital problems and who was shot by the husband of a woman, of the woman. They would have read of a group that makes its members hold on to a, quote, lie detector, which uh, I believe is the e-meter, while the leaders asked them the most intimate details about their sexual life and then took these answers and sent them to the leader of the group. That is Scientology. That is also uh, Nixium. Like that specific scenario is also Nixium, the Keith Raniere, um, the Allison Mack organization with the uh, the branding and the 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 pyramidic sex cult is quite a go read up on that um oh my own introduction to scientology started about a year and a half ago it was the day after robert f kennedy was killed and wow and i was still a little shaky still glued to the TV set, still moaning that such a tragedy couldn't have happened twice. In the midst of my mourning, I received a frantic call from a former boss of mine, a man in his 40s whom I hadn't seen in a couple of years, who said it was imperative to see me immediately. When he arrived carrying a flower pot with a McCarthy button stuck in the soil, I poured him a drink and he sat down in the chair across from him, waiting I poured him a drink and sat in the chair across from him, waiting to hear what was so important. Come over here and sit in my lap, he said coyly. There's something I have to tell you. I obeyed, not realizing what was about to happen. I've just discovered who I am, he said, and I sat there quietly, waiting for his reply. God, he told me. I got off his lap quickly. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite easy to get off the subject. He prattled on and on like a paranoid, telling me what it was like to be God. When did you discover you were God? I finally interrupted. Since I joined Scientology, he told me. Oh, I think I've read a little bit about them, I laughed. Aren't they the ones who believed they've been reincarnated for 74 trillion years? He nodded. Oh, come on, I chided. You don't really believe that. You're so conservative. House in Long Island, nice kids, a wife. Not anymore, he told me. I left her. Why? She was suppressing me. Was she against Scientology? Yes, he admitted, but she was wrong. Scientology has helped me. But anything helps a person for a while if he believes in it, I said, and started arguing with him about faith healing. You're wrong, he told me. And just to prove to you, oh, I have to, 
Dwell on the uh, believing in anything for a while helps you heal. Dwell on that. You're wrong, he told me. And just to prove to you that Scientology really has helped me. Look how much I've changed. All I used to care about was making money. Now I care. all I care about is helping people. I've given $700 away this week to people standing on the street corner who looked like they needed to be helped. Look, he said, and removed several crumpled sheets of paper from his pocket and began reading the names, phone numbers, and occupations of every person he'd met in the past few weeks, from hippies in the village to the conductor who'd taken his train ticket. What are you going to do with those, I asked him. Help them too, he said. How? By keeping the mafia away from them. But the mafia isn't after them, I protested. That's because I wrote down their names, he replied. I decided to stop arguing. He was too far gone. Instead, I sat there for a while, listening to his delusions of persecution by the mafia, or his conversations with God, or the changes in his life since he had joined Scientology, and all of the reasons why I should join it too. After a while, he stopped talking altogether and went into a trance. I sat there quietly until I noticed that his eyes were riveted on me. I immediately panicked, because after I graduated college, I had worked for a short while with patients at a mental hospital. After a few difficult situations, I knew what his glazed look meant. I was right. God has desired to rape you, he said slowly, as he started walking all too quickly toward me. I didn't dare show how frightened I was. The trick for handling people when they got dangerous at the hospital was to keep talking, to keep them talking. But now, with both arms like a vice around me and only one thought on his mind, it was hard to find another topic to interest him. Tell me more about Scientology, I finally said. This worked. He released his grip and went into another trance, talking again about how Scientology had helped him. Just look at what has done for me, he said, while I was trying to steer him out the door. I took a long, hard look. Two weeks later, he was in a mental institution. After that evening, I put Scientology down on my list as a possible topic to write about. But I didn't really decide to investigate it until I bumped into another old friend who had also become a Scientologist. He, too, tried to persuade me to join. I know about all that, I said, cutting him right off in the middle of his perfectly practiced sales pitch. In fact, do you remember who, uh, you know, who used to work with us in our company? He was in Scientology. I know, said my Scientology friend proudly. I was the one who brought him in. <laughs> well, I fumed. Do you also know that he is now in a mental institution? While he was in Scientology, he decried that he was God. Maybe, said my Scientologist friend. He really is. Chapter 1. From Dianetics to Scientology. The sun never sets on Scientology. It's from the aims of Scientology. In 1950, a fad called Dianetics hit America like a hurricane. That's spelled D-I-A-N-E-T-I-C-S. And it attracted hundreds of thousands of people, especially on the West Coast, promising to cure them of all their problems without subjugating them to all those tedious hours required by psychoanalysis. To understand the cause of all their problems and cure them, all they had to do was read a book written by a science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard. 
but in addition to letting people cure themselves. This book had something to offer those people who always secretly wanted to be doctors and to cure others. It allowed them to do this without all those tedious years of required training. All they had to do was read the book by Hubbard. The impact of this book, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, was incredible. Dianetics clubs sprang up everywhere. People referred to Hubbard's book simply as the book and thought of it more as the Bible. Thousands more were throwing Dianetics parties and reliving their birth. In keeping with the Dianetics philosophy, which stated that a person's prenatal experiences were the cause of many of that person's problems today. Fascinating. And uh, enlightening. What had once been a seance had at least become science. But then, just when everyone was having fun, a few critics had to come along and spoil it all. Dianetics was discredited by the professional doctors and their organizations, and America deserted it to search for Bridley Murphy, the Irish woman who believed she had been reincarnated instead. Dianetics then also quietly underwent a rebirth. First, people could no longer become, quote, doctors just by buying Hubbard's book. Instead, they had to pay to take courses at his institutions before they could get, quote, professional status. Secondly, Hubbard changed the science of Dianetics to a religion. And last, he renamed this religion to Scientology. Not everyone applauded these moves. One critic said the name Scientology was no more impressive than if it was a fruit shop proprietor decided to call himself a fruitologist. Yes. Yes. Maybe that's what we should, uh, that should be our code language is, is uh, fruitology and... Um, fruitologists. I think that's what we, I think that's it. There we go. Thank you once again to Paulette Cooper for giving us our language. Hmm. But most of the objections and suspicion were levied not at the name, but at the religion. Agnostics seemed to resent the religion and the religious may have seen Uh, may have resented the agnosticism. Scientologists did accept the idea of God, but believed that God existed in each man, and as a thetan, T-H-E-T-A-N, which is roughly comparable to the spirit or soul, uh, like think of the heavenly spirit, That's I think that's the concept that she's talking about. They therefore preach that man doesn't have a soul or spirit. He is a spirit called a thetan. God, when he was referred to, was sometimes called the big thetan. Both caps. The BT. The big thetan. In addition to worshiping a deity, Scientology also had some other religious elements as well. Its adherents were imbued with a missionary fervor, eager to march forth and deliver the gospel according to Hubbard. In addition, the followers took on faith in everything Hubbard said. And finally, L. Ron Hubbard, or Ron, as believers called him, the Western guru, inventor, leader, and promoter of Dianetics and Scientology, while never proclaiming that he was God, was placed in an almost equally exalted position by his followers. Well, yeah. If there's no God and you're the guy who's making all the scripture, then, I mean, that's it. You're de facto God. Many people were still suspicious about Dianetics' conversion to religion, perhaps of because of the science 
of Dianetics had run into so many difficulties that turning into a religion and renaming it may have seemed like an attempt to evade its pervasive problems. Now, I'm going to pause right here. I'm going to put a little pen in here. Okay, I'm not going to forget that, but I just want to briefly talk about. Um, let's see. Best podcast that talked about this recently was there was a well, it was a bonus episode of Bunta Vista, but I'll, I, I went and did a little more extra research on that. And I will say that if you look into the origins of chiropractic, which is apparently what is actually called the, the full-on thing, if you go and you look at the origins there and the way that chiropractic is discussed, it started out as an art and then it became a religion and then it became a science but it's not a science it's an art and a religion but then it's also kind of all three at the same time but also none of them legally speaking but also one of them maybe legally speaking at least they like it to be that way and then there is a leader who wrote founding texts but of course on top of all of that it is a licensed practice in certain places and not in others and at that point, when it's a licensed practice, how can it also be? I'm, I'm sure you, you see what I'm getting at. Um, basically, it's a parallel story. The The history of Scientology from this point and forward, their battle with the tax exempt status and not their battle with being regarded as a church or whatever kind of organization, you know, they, they prefer that they be called a church for numerous benefits besides just the optics you know taxes being the most important but if you look at um things like chiropractic in that situation what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to portray this is this is it a fictionalized uh an invented religion based on bones they want to certify as a uh as a science, as a direct, like this, the derived science, the, the factoids that they think they have accumulated from the religious practice, from the art of chiropractic, not the actual belief, they're taking, okay, they're taking the knowledge gained from the art, and that is the certified thing that chiropractic actually is, and that is much like what Scientology is doing here. So they have a founding text. I mean, that's really, it's truly what it is. I mean, the, the chiropractor that you see is literally following a very a derivative form of this same kind of scam. No. It's not a scam. But wouldn't it be interesting if it was? Um, anyway, I'll continue. I'm sure you'll get the point very soon. Uh, think about that as you think about how Dianetics turned into something else that turned into something else that is now controlled by someone else and now how an organization really only is what its leadership is and what its goals are and its resources that it has at any given time. And it was something at the beginning. It was a man's belief in a book and then it became... I don't know, a way to raise capital based off his creative writings, essentially turning them into scripture of some sort, even though they say you don't have scripture. But I mean, essentially, I mean, it's foundational text of your uh, organizational with your organization of spiritual beliefs. 
and then you go from you're selling books and then you have churches and organizations, which Paulette will get into. And then now today it's morphed into something completely different. I mean, back in the nineties, it was when it's a, it was at its height, they got their tax exempt status and then they became something completely different. And believe me, if they could go public, <laughs> if they could figure out a way to go public, they probably would. Um, but the people who are running it now have created it into something entirely different than it was even 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it's still run by the same person then, but the the person who runs it today, his name is David Miscavige. You can go Google him. Find him very easily. He's a, a fascinating person, and there is tons of information about there on him. And I, I suggest that you go and learn everything you can about him and his family and his um and what's going on with that. Uh, but just keep in mind the comparison of, of chiropractic with, uh, with Scientology. That'll be a thread, I'm sure. And I'll just begin again here. Dianetics had run into so many difficulties that turning into a religion and renaming it may have seemed like an attempt to evade its pervasive problems. The first problem was the dissertation of one of the earliest and most prestigious adherents of Dianetics, Dr. J.A. Winter. Winter had written the foreword to Hubbard's book and had become the director of Hubbard's Dianetic Institute. After he severed his relationship with Dianetics, he wrote a book called A Doctor's Report on Dianetics, I'm trying to find, I have been trying to find for a while, which not only criticized Hubbard's research and methods, but said that Dianetics was causing people to go psychotic. He discussed the case of one person who was treated by the Dianetic Institute and then disappeared, returning later and stating he had with him, quote, one of my disciples, St. Simon, end quote. In addition, in January of 1951, the New Jersey Board of Medical Examiners instituted proceedings against Hubbard's Dianetic Organization for operating an unlicensed medical school, and possibly for letting people append an MD after their names, uh, representing not a medical doctor, but a master of Dianetics. Also, Hubbard had some philosophical differences with the Dianetic Foundation he had established in California and broke off with them. Hubbard's uh, Wichita Foundation filed a voluntary petition of bankruptcy in February 21st, 1951. Some of Hubbard's other organizations in Phoenix, Philadelphia, and London were successful, but he ran into difficulties later in Washington, where he established the founding Church of Scientology there. And then, to add to Hubbard's troubles and successes, he brought Scientology aboard. Abroad. By March 1959, Hubbard had moved his entire operation over to England's St. Hill Manor in East Grinstead, Sussex, right outside London. He left America, according to the London Times, quote, because the atmosphere was being poisoned by nuclear experiments, end quote. By the time he left America, he had 153 franchised Scientology auditors here. Uh, quote, franchise may be strange structure for a group that insists they're a church 
And that may explain why they've recently renamed them to missions. It doesn't matter what they are called, missions or franchises. What does matter is that they have all had to turn over 10% of their gross income to Hubbard, specifically him. In addition, by that time, he had established headquarters, or orgs, as they call them, short for organizations, in various parts of Australia, Africa, New Zealand, and Europe, all turning over 10% of their income to Hubbard too. So we're talking global already in uh, 1959. And I want to remind you that he was running, he was getting in trouble as early as 1951 in New Jersey. Um, think about this. Mo- almost every single classic film you've ever seen, most of them, let's say, I mean, and if you if they're older, then you're more than well aware, but I'm going to say virtually every mo- classic movie you've heard of came out basically after L. Ron Hubbard was already being investigated by, um, like, globally. I mean, New Jersey, but soon in other places too. Like... <laughs> The organization has been under investigation essentially since its beginning and and is claimed in this book as recently as soon as 70. I mean, all I know is uh, you're not investigated repeatedly for 70 years and then you get out of it unless you're doing something uh, below board. <laughs> the board is being uh, flipped and 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 flopped and uh tossed over and then kicked down a hall and then reset if uh if everything is above board while such an arrangement would seem quite enviable hubbard's problems were just beginning the british were not enchanted with scientology they refused to recognize saint hill as a church hubbard could only claim it as an educational establishment then they refused to give Scientology students visas to enter the country for study or work at St. Hill. And finally, they decided to set up an inquiry into Scientology, which is now underway. If the inquiry is anything like the other inquiries, Hubbard's problems are far from over. Well, no, he was never found. He was fine. After Victoria... Australia completed its Scientology inquiry. Scientology was banned, and its practice was made punishable by up to $500 in two years in jail. In South Australia, officials outlawed Scientology and their use of e-meters, a device similar to a lie detector. In Western Australia, Scientology was also banned. In New Zealand, officials conducted an inquiry into Scientology but decided not to act Uh, but decided not to ban it because they felt it had changed, although they did criticize some of its earlier methods and express concern over certain Scientology practices. Scientology was not banned in New South Wales, however, where anybody can set up himself as a consulting psychologist. One New South Wales man who was convicted of kidnapping and murder had at one point in his career styled himself as a therapist. And in South Africa, where an inquiry is currently underway, it does not look hopeful. One witness allegedly testified that the Scientologists were planning to arm 5,000 Africans and seize control of the government. A member 
of South Africa's parliament referred to Scientology as a, quote, cancer like communism that could destroy South Africa, end quote. And yet, despite all the inquiries, despite all the bannings, and despite all the negative publicity, outsiders estimate that the Scientologists probably have several hundred thousand followers in America. Possibly a quarter of a million in California alone. Maybe 100,000 in England, and perhaps two to three million in the world. The Scientologists' own figures are even more glowing. They claim at least four million members in America, and probably five million members in the world. One thing is certain, Scientology is expanding, and probably tripled or quadrupled its members in the past few years, and would continue to for quite a while. Well into the, the 90s, as far as I know, and then it fell off a cliff. What is the future of Scientology? Will its adherents revive Dianetics? as they are doing in America and England now, if they run into more and more difficulties? Will they repeat their claims that they are a science, or will they make their claims that they are religion even more vociferously? In a letter titled Scientology 1970, Hubbard wrote that Scientology would be planned on a religious basis throughout the world. The letter concluded, quote, this will not upset in any way the usual activities of any organization. It is entirely a matter for accountants and solicitors. End quote. Huh. Yeah, so so far, give it up for uh, give it up for Paulette Cooper, right? She's pretty awesome. Uh, she has a pretty dope writing style. Kind of feels like I'm reading my own writing in some way. Uh I like it. Chapter 2. The Confessionals. When matters of sex and perversion are introduced, as is frequently the case, they are discussed and probed and dwelt upon, sometimes for hours on end. The quality of the filth and depravity recorded in the files as being discussed almost defies description from the Australian inquiry. The Church of Scientology, as they call themselves today, no longer claims to cure people of their emotional and physical problems. Instead, they say it's people's spiritual well-being that concerns them now. The method is still basically the same, resembling a combination of psychotherapy and the Catholic confession, although Scientologists today empathize their similarities with the latter. The beginning Scientologist is called a pre-clear, someone who is not yet free from his problems and difficulties, as is a clear Scientologist. The pre-clear reveals intimate details of his past and discusses his present problems with an auditor, someone resembling a priest who is frequently called minister or reverend in the Scientology Church. During this Scientology confessional, which is called auditing and sometimes processing, the pre-clear holds onto two empty tin cans, <laughs> usually soup or V8 juice, and this was the case at the time. They made them look a little more high-tech now, but the, the science is exactly the same. 
which are connected to a crude galvanometer Scientologists call an E-meter. The pre-clear believes that an E-meter works somewhat like a lie detector. He is told that it is a truth detector, however, and he is therefore revealing increasingly intimate details of his life to his auditor while holding on to the meter. There are major differences between the Catholic and Episcopalian confessionals and a Scientologist confessional. First of all, before they will audit him, the Scientologists will take uh, will make the confessor sign a release form swearing he will never sue them. Second, the Scientologists charge people for the opportunity of unburdening themselves, and they charge for a great deal of money for this privilege. Third, the person has very little choice about what he confesses to because he has already asked certain questions repeatedly, such as, have you done anything your mother would be ashamed to find out? He must not only answer these questions, but he must answer them fully and truthfully, or else the lie detector will give him away. Fourth, the intimate information he reveals to his auditor is not kept completely confidential. Confidential. As many as 10 people may examine these files since a pre-clears records are available to all of his auditors who often number five or six, plus the director of processing and additionally an ethics officer, a type of uh, internal police officer in the Scientology organization. In addition, Hubbard has access to these records. Portions of a pre-clears files may be sent to the main Scientology headquarters at St. Hill so that Hubbard can review them for research. Finally, in addition to not always maintaining complete confidentiality, cases have occurred, and there are certainly the exception and not the rule, in which some of the auditors have also failed to maintain a proper professional relationship with their pre-clears. One reason for this may be the surprising physical intimacy that exists between auditor and pre-clear. In at least one exercise that is part of the Scientology auditing, the auditor and pre-clear are seated in chairs without arms, close together with their knees intertwined. In other exercises, the auditors may touch or move the pre-clear around or touch his hands for several hours, moving them slowly in a circular motion, an act which could surely become quite sensual after a long period of time. Ethical problems may have also occurred because many of these auditors are in their only in their teens or early 20s. Teenagers, wrote a Scientology director once, make the swingiest auditors. Yet despite their uninvolved while listening to the what the Australian inquiry described as a quote normal and abnormal sexual matters that are frequently dwelt upon in great detail and in an erotic manner. End quote. During these sessions, the preclear is encouraged to shed his inhibitions and his reticence or reluctance to reveal the most intimate things that may be disparaged. Scientology files have contained such statements as PC, preclear, gets often the urge to move down to his sex organs. If he does that, he gets re-stimulated, end quote, or, quote, PC, has a bug about sending sexual beams at auditor, end quote. Or even, quote, PC disturbed because he came to have auditing and now wants to have sexual intercourse, end quote. Apparently, it's not only the pre-clear that has gotten sexually stimulated in such an atmosphere. One male auditor wrote in his pre-clear's file that she was, quote, sexy as hell. 
In another case, the Reverend William J. Fisk, a Scientology reverend, was conducting his Scientology class in Seattle when Russell Edward Johnson, 36, a carpenter and building contractor, entered the room. According to the Seattle Times, Fisk shouted, quote, This man is going to shoot me. Go get a cop. Please, someone get a cop. End quote. But his plea was too late. With one bullet in his chest fired by Russell Johnson, the Reverend was dead. During the murder trial, it came out that Reverend Fisk, the one who was killed, was not only having an affair with Johnson's wife, but had revealed the fact to Johnson himself, boasting that Johnson's wife was completely under his control. The wife also told her husband that she had been having an affair and, in fact, sued him for divorce on the day before the murder. The wife, a mother of four children, had spent approximately $1,000 on Scientology, and had been going for help with her marital problems. If anyone is wondering what happened to Johnson afterwards, forget what you read in Anatomy of a Murder. In that book, a husband killed the man who had intercourse with his wife, pleaded irresistible impulse, and went free. In this case, Johnson pleaded temporary insanity and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Other ethical difficulties may arise because the auditors are just hastily trained laymen. Their backgrounds are not checked or investigated. They only answer a simple true-false questionnaire about themselves. According to a United States tax case in Chicago, the Scientology Reverend Justin agreed to audit a woman for $1,000 on the condition that he could move into the house with her, her husband, and their three young daughters. After the Reverend entrenched himself firmly in the home, the husband saw the Reverend was upsetting his wife and asked him to leave. He refused. Nine months after he finally did go, the parents learned that the reverend had secretly tried to see and possibly to remove two of their young daughters who were staying in a Girl Scout camp. The Girl Scout authorities stopped him and informed the parents. The parents still suspected nothing until one month after later, the reverend was found wandering the halls of the young girl's grammar school looking for the three of them. The authorities took him to the principal's office, found out what he was doing, and called the wife. Several months later, Three United States Marshals came to the parents' home looking for Reverend Justin, saying there was a complaint against him elsewhere for molesting little girls. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll read one more chapter together. Chapter 3, Life and Sex in the Womb. Please pick up the somatic at the beginning and roll the engram. L. Ron Hubbard. The purpose of Scientology auditing, or processing, is to help the pre-clear get rid of his engrams, E-N-G-R-A-M-S which Scientologists say are a type of impression imprinted on the protoplasm of the cell itself. Hubbard believes that these engrams are stored in the, quote, reactive mind, roughly comparable to Freud's unconscious, and that before a person can solve his problems, the engram has to be refiled in the analytic mind, in other words, the conscious mind. By transferring the engrams in this manner, a person is supposed to become aware of his problems and is presumably able to resolve them. 
These engrams are said to have been recorded on the cells during the moments of unconsciousness or extreme pain. In addition, they begin to record not from the moment we are born, but from the moment we are conceived, and sometimes earlier. Some Scientologists are able to remember being a sperm, or even the egg, waiting to be met by the sperm. Thus, it is obvious that Scientologists believe that many of our problems started long before we were born. Hubbard's theory never makes it really clear, at least in a manner that would be accepted by most medical doctors, exactly how engrams can be planted before a fetus had developed a nervous system, or the sense organs, which, to register an impression, sense organs with which to register an impression, or even how a person could retain or, quote, remember verbal statements before he had command of a language. I would say precisely, and I would also add that um, the the concept of the engram existed before um, Elron, LRH, Flash, um, before he started using the term engram, which I don't know if I, I assume is left out by this book because that it was like a loose term. I'll do some more research before the next episode to figure out the origins of it exactly, but um, he didn't create that term. In fact, I believe that he like used a scientific term and twisted it kind of for his own purposes. Um, hmm. Scientologists simply accept his theory on faith that if a husband beats his pregnant wife and shouts, take that as he hits her, a take that and Graham can be planted in the womb. Thus, when Junior grows up, he might react to this statement literally and become a thief whose goal is to take that. In fact, if you examine Hubbard's view of marital life as reflected in the case studies of his first book, you discover that most fathers spent a good portion of their marital lives giving engrams to their unborn children by beating their wives while they were pregnant with Junior or while in the act of conceiving him. But the fathers weren't the only villains— Many of the mothers Hubbard depicted made Medea look like the Madonna. When those mothers weren't being knocked up or knocked down by their husbands, they were usually giving the unborn children engrams with AA, attempted abortion. Hubbard wrote that 20 or 30 abortion attempts are not uncommon in the Abiri, and there are so many attempted abortions in Hubbard's case histories that it seems sometimes seems to be a miracle that any of us got here at all those children who did make it through though despite the attempted abortion suffered later in life not only from the traces of whatever the mother tried to abort him with usually knitting needles according to hubbard very specific but because when he grew up he was condemned to live with murderers whom he knows reactively to be murderers through all of his weak and helpless youth because he could, quote, remember the abortion attempt. Completely bizarre. Readers should not be alarmed if they are unable to remember their life in the womb or conception. The earliest a non-Scientologist can remember, according to most doctors and psychiatrists, is approximately 18 months. Hubbard says that we can remember earlier, and one of the reasons we think we can't is, of course, attempted abortion. 
The standard attempted abortion case nearly always has an infanthood and childhood full of mama assuring him that he cannot remember anything from when he was a baby. She doesn't want him to recall how handy she was and if unsuccessful in her efforts with various instruments. Possibly prenatal memory itself would just be ordinary memory if this guilty conscience in mother had not been rolling. That was a quote of his, I believe. Hubbard also said that another reason the mothers encouraged the mother either to forget or think they couldn't remember was that, quote, Mama also has had a couple of more men than Papa that Papa never knew about, end quote. He also implied that this is why mothers might not want their children to go into Dianetics, so that as early as Hubbard's first book, where this appeared, Hubbard was saying that people who fought Dianetics had crimes that they were trying to conceal, a theme which later becomes almost an obsession with him. When Hubbard's mothers weren't trying to abort themselves or being beaten, they were often having affairs. This situation could also give the unborn child an engram, especially if the child in the womb was ultimately to be named after the father. Hubbard believed that many of these unfaithful wives made unpleasant remarks about their husbands to their lovers, and that Junior, who was being knocked practically unconscious in the womb by the sex act, would, quote, hear these remarks and think they were aimed at him. It is obvious that with all the lovers' trysts, attempted abortions, beatings, etc., life in the womb was no joy for Junior. Hubbard wrote that there were even more problems since there were, quote, intestinal squeaks, groans, flowing water, belches, end quote, all making continual sounds for the fetus or embryo. It was also quite tight in there, a situation which was aggravated if the mother had high blood pressure. Okay. In addition, if the mother sneezed, the, quote, baby gets knocked unconscious, end quote. If the mother ran into a table, quote, baby gets his head shoved in, end quote. If the mother was constipated, quote, baby in an anxious effort gets squashed, end quote. If the mother took quinine, presumably for an attempted abortion, the child would have a ringing sound in his ears throughout his life. And if the parents had intercourse, the child had additional sensation of being put through a washing machine. Not only was the fetus or embryo supposed to be aware of the sensation of intercourse between his parents or whomever, but the engram could record what they were saying as well. The following case was alleged, allegedly remembered by a pre-clear. Girl, I wonder what they're doing. Then a pause. I hear a squishing sound. Then a pause in embarrassment. Oh. Auditor, recount the engram, please. Girl, there's a sort of faint rhythm at first, and then it gets faster. I can hear breathing. Now it's beginning to bear down harder, but a lot less than it did the first time. Then it eases up. Then I hear my father's voice. Oh, honey, I won't come in. <laughs> okay. Oh, honey, I won't come in you now. End quote. And my mother says, quote, I don't want you in there at all then. You cold fish. End quote. Wow. 
When the parents have intercourse, it is not only an adverse effect on the child at the time, Hubbard claims, but that results could be quite dangerous later in life. Hubbard says that many patients remember having been raped by their fathers. Freud came across this many uh, such many such cases and recognize them as fantasies. According to Hubbard, a pre-clear who remembers being raped by her father may be right, only she may have been in the womb at the time. To show us how bad life in the womb really was, Hubbard tells us the story of a man who had passed for normal <laughs> 36, for 36 years of his life. That was a quote from Hubbard. <laughs> had passed for normal for 36 years of his life. I'm doing a good job at that. Though uh, Through Dianetics treatment, they discovered that while the man's mother was pregnant with him, she had had intercourse 76 times with her husband, who was sometimes drunk, and her lover, quote, all painful because of enthusiasm of lover. Okay. In addition, she masturbated 81 times, quote, with fingers jolting and injuring with orgasm end quote, and douched on 22 separate occasions. Like most of the other mothers, she also tried AA, attempted abortion, with 22 surgical abortion. Uh, yep, 22 surgical abortions, a couple of homemade jobs with paste and a strong and strong Lysol, a few desperate attempts by jumping off a box, and on occasion, another occasion by having her husband sit on her stomach. In addition, she was constipated 52 times, had three colds, one case of uh, grippy, one hangover, 23 cases of morning sickness, 38 fights, presumably with her husband, which led to three falls, five incidents of the hiccups, 18 various accidents and collisions, 19 visits to the doctor, premature labor pains, and ultimately 29 hours of labor. And to top it all off, she talked to herself, which Hubbard says gave the man even more engrams to work on. Hubbard tells us that this man, who had all these awful things happen to him while in the womb, took 500 hours to cure. Hubbard also said that he picked the case because it contained, quote, the usual problems. It would seem the engram sees all, hears all, and registers everything, but sometimes it is incorrect. One auditor reported that a rash on the backside of his preclear, and it was not stated how the auditor found out about the rash, started when a preclear was in the womb, his mother frequently asked for an aspirin. The engram was said to have accidentally misrecorded this as ass-burn. Ira Wallach, who wrote a book called Hopalong Freud, poked fun at these theories in a special chapter he devoted to diapetics. <laughs> oh, diapetics. That's a good one. Picture the mind as a refrigerator, gas or electric. Now, diap diapetics demonstrates the part of the mind retains concepts not available for immediate use or analysis. These concepts have been frozen in the mind's ice tray. In another section of the mind, we can find the crisper. The crisper holds ideas and concepts fresh and edible and not too damp. Green ideas should always be left on the windowsill for a few days. Controlling both the ice tray and the crisper is the defroster. Wallach poke fun at the clear, a Scientologist who has gotten rid of all his engrams and problems, calling him a crisp. He called the pre-clear a pre-crisp. In such a patient, you will find the ice tray empty, the crisper full, and a dozen eggs behind the can of peaches. 
and that's it. Um, many more chapters in the book. Cover the e-meter probably next time specifically. You can totally read any of this out of order now that I've actually been flipping through it a little bit. Um, and next time, um, we'll go through just a little bit of this. We'll get to the rest of the articles that I have saved up. And also on top of that, I'd like to um, take a little look at um, a little bit of local history. So thank you very much for listening. This is Don Johnson. Um, you can look me up on uh, Twitter. And if you're listening to this right now as it's being released, you probably already know where to go. So uh, donate to your local food bank. And uh, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>